You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, it's your old pal Mike White coming at you. I just wanted to warn you that this episode was recorded when I was having a lot of computer problems, and so my audio clips out sometimes. It just gets a little cut out. I had two recordings of myself, and both of them were doing the exact same thing, though in different spots, which was fascinating. So I took the best of both of those, and neither one were spectacular. So just uh, know that before you start listening and wondering why I sound like I'm um, giving you your order back at the drive through window. Thank you very much, and enjoy this episode. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Does it live in a jungle? No. Oh. Is it really fast? Does it live on the Great Plains of Africa? No. Hey! What is going on? Hold on, guys. Daddy, be careful on the road. Jerry? Get back in your car right now! Remain with your feet! to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me is mr patrick bromley hi mike happy to be here among the living also with us is ms dahlia schweitzer hello happy to be back we kick off shocktober 2019 with a look at world war z i can't say it's based on max brooks's book of the same name though he gets a credit at the beginning and definitely uh, loaned the title of his book to the film. It's a zombie apocalypse film starring Brad Pitt that takes Pitt around the world looking for the cause and cure for a zombie plague. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie, as well as a film trained to Bassan, maybe a couple others along the way. So, Dolly, when was the first time you saw World War Z, and what did you think? Oh my god, that's really hard to 
say I was it was definitely when I was working on the going viral book, but I can't remember when I first saw it because I saw it many times while I was doing research on the book. I just remember being impressed with the scope of the film because we've never seen something like that in a zombie movie before, but sort of being confused because I was like, I remember being like, oh, the, the plot's kind of all, like normally zombie movies have really simple, straightforward plots. And I was like, I'm not really sure what's happening here. And I did the reverse of what you're supposed to do where I watched the movie and then I read the book. And then after I read the book, I was even more confused. And Patrick, <laughs> how about you? I remember seeing it opening day and wow. I think expecting the worst because I had read all about the movie's production problems and how they basically reshot the third act. And I didn't get the worst. Um, I think it's a mostly competent movie. It's just not a movie that did much for me then, or nor does it do much for me now. I've got a lot of people asking me, are you doing World War Z? And it's like, <laughs> I can't say kind of like you. It's like, okay, this is a movie. It's barely a movie sometimes. The forensics of this movie are what interests me because I'm always interested in stuff that was supposed to have a completely different ending than what we ended up seeing. And as far as I know, footage is out there, but it is not on the DVD release or the Blu-ray. And they don't talk about it either. You know, just a few weeks ago, we got Solo, the Star Wars movie. And again, a lot of stuff was shot. We're never going to see that, and it's pretty much under wraps. They talk about, you know, the incident on the the Blu-ray where they shut down production, but we don't hear anything about what the movie was supposed to be. Same thing with this Blu-ray release. I just mostly wanted to talk about how this movie became what it became and what it is presently, what we're familiar with. I don't know when they decided, hey, we are really sunk right now. We need to reshoot the entire the last third of this movie. Though they had to shoot more than just that because they had to set up a bunch of other stuff. But we'll definitely talk about that as we go along. The opening montage of this movie, you know, just weeks ago we talked about I Am Legend. And it feels like the opening montage of that movie and the opening montage of this movie are almost interchangeable, except for the love of Emma Thompson. I think that's the only real difference. It's basically the workplace, and we're about to flush ourselves down the toilet. Pretty much what you see on the news every day anyway. What's funny is actually in my going viral class, I show the intro sequence for both movies basically back to back for that exact same reason, because it's the same thing. And just like the use of the sort of the news footage. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's identical. When we talked to Mark uh, Protosevich when it came to I Am Legend, that had been kicking around for a while. And then kind of the same thing here. Max Brooks wrote the book World War Z and Oral History of the Zombie War in 2006. And then the earliest scripts were happening in 2007. But then we this movie until a few years later. So it was, again, kind of talking about the troubled production. It was very similar to how I Am Legend had been written and rewritten much earlier and then kind of finally found its way to the big screen. Kind of the same thing for this one, though maybe not as troubled. 
And it also hinges upon the idea of the star. And if we, you know, Brad Pitt is basically what made this thing happen. They were troubled in different ways. Because I think just the, the length of time that it took I Am Legend to get to the screen points to obviously, I think, even more like behind the scenes issues than we know. Just that so many people got attached to it and then dropped out. And I don't know. I feel like there's more forensics to be done there, too. Kind of like I Am Legend, our main character, Brad Pitt, in this uh, Jerry Lane, he is kind of a big shot, and he's the only one that can get the job done. Though, I like Jerry Lane more than I liked Neville in the I Am Legend movie, because he's got a little bit more to work with, though, I don't know, the stakes in this movie, his stakes are his family. And we get introduced to them, and I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll definitely talk about it. But I have to say, once they kick the action into gear, and the action starts pretty early in this movie, they don't let off the gas for quite a while. That's literally, just to go back to what you were saying about Jerry, that's literally as much characterization as anyone came up with for him. It's just, hey, what if Brad Pitt had a family? <laughs> oh, okay, and that's that's as far as it goes. Like, and I like Brad Pitt as an actor, but I have this long-standing theory that Brad Pitt is a character actor in a leading man's body, and so in every movie where he gives kind of a character actor performance, uh, he's really great, and you walk away saying, "Boy, that Brad Pitt, he's something." And then every time he's given kind of every time he's in movie star mode, which is what I would argue he's in in World War Z. He's he's just kind of like a mayonnaise sandwich. He's like not anything. He's a haircut in search of a performance. And <laughs> Legends of the Fall, meet Joe Black. Oh, this is a bad haircut, too. And it's so greasy in this one. <laughs> it's very greasy. I don't know what what the idea was, but behind like, hey, let's give him this weird long hair. But he it, literally, it, it, he's a job and a family. And that's as much characterization as we have for this guy. So it's kind of hard to stick with him for a two hour, you know, running time when that's as much as we really know about him, what he does for a living and who he's married to and who his kids are. But even with the family, they're in the first, like, I don't know, 20 minutes of the movie or something, and then they're just whisked away. So it's not, it's like they, they're there to introduce background. So like, oh, FYI, Brad Pitt has a family. But then they become kind of irrelevant to the movie. Like, they're just, they're not there. There are no stakes. There's no, like, oh, my God, I've got to rescue my family. It's like they just get whisked away, and then it's just Brad and his greasy hair. Oh, come on. There's that character development that one of his daughters has asthma, which comes to nothing. There's sort of the reason that he agrees to go along with this, because they're basically holding his family hostage. But that's the that's that's the use that they have in this movie. Exactly. Yeah, they are there just to be there. And yeah, as far as like he's what now a stay at home dad, but he used to work for the U.N., and it sounds like he used to work in like the shit, but we really don't get any of that stuff. We don't get any sort of flashbacks to what he was. We don't get any stories about, you know, there, there's that that moment in The Hunt for Red October where they're making fun of the Alec Baldwin character. Do you see that ring on his finger? The Academy, class of 72, a Marine. You're kidding. How did you? Greer told me. Some of his third year, he went down in a chopper accident in the med. Bad. Pilot crew kill. 
That kid spent 10 months in traction and another year learning to walk again. Did his fourth year from the hospital. That's up to you, Charlie, but you might consider cutting the kid a little slack. He's basically Jack Ryan, but without the history and without really even making like huge scientific leaps or anything. I mean, he's he's just not very special whatsoever. It's not even like, wow, Brad Pitt is the only guy that could do this. He just happens to be able to survive uh, mostly by luck. Well, and sometimes we're told he survives specifically because he's special. It's like, we don't care if everybody dies. Just make sure we get Brad Pitt out of there. Like the and airplane scene. Exactly. The one where, like, everybody basically gets sucked out of the airplane except for him. Again, similar to I Am Legend, there's this emergency time. It's in Philadelphia instead of New York. And, yeah, he gets his family taken away or or saved. They get saved from an apartment building in New Jersey. They make it to Jersey in an RV. And then, yeah, his family gets rescued off the top of this building. They are taken out to a ship. And... Jerry has named Terry, which isn't confusing whatsoever. Uh, I don't know why they went with Terry for this guy's name, but okay, cool. So, hey, Jerry, it's Terry. Terry, it's Jerry. I need some help. So let's have my family out here on the ship. And, oh, hey, there's this virologist who needs to be taken to a potential danger zone in Korea. And, Jerry, you're the only one that can do it. But don't worry, that virologist will die within five minutes of him being on the ground. Dying a very stupid death. He doesn't even die because of his... He dies because he falls down and shoots himself. That's the first act of the film right there. I like the beat where, you know, because I was kind of looking for stuff to to like. I do like the beat where they count down how long it takes somebody to become infected with the with the little toy that's, you know, singing the song or whatever and counting down. I thought that was kind of a nice touch. And I like the moment where he stands at the edge of the building prepared to jump if he is infected. I think we see something very similar done much better in something like Train to Busan, which I know we'll get to eventually. But um, there are moments here and there in the first act of this movie that I'm like, okay, I like that. Okay, I like that. But the sum total never has done much for me. Yeah, the whole thing of them going up the stairs in the apartment building, all being red flare, it's got a very nice visual look to it. Them and the other family who seem like an immigrant family and only their son can speak English, that's a nice moment that they decide to stay behind and then the dad ends up being the zombie that's running after them and then the son has to see that, though I think... In the script, at least, Brad Pitt tries to uh, uh, protect him seeing his dad as a zombie. And that character, Tomas, a.k.a. he becomes a character a little bit in some of the scripts, but pretty much just disappears after that moment. But you're right, the whole thing of him standing on the edge, I was really reminded a lot of more mod films like uh, 28 Days Later or the Dawn of the Dead remake. And I suppose that might be because we are definitely in fast-moving zombie mood here. Oh, yeah, that's that's like the era. I think 28 Days Later really launched that, and then now they're on like high speed. Which I always wonder, I mean, me as a zombie, can I run faster than I can right now, or am I going to be out of breath? 
Unfortunately, there's a there are comparisons to I Am Legend as well because so many of the zombies in this movie are done with like CG or CG enhancements. And there's something to me, especially when we get to Israel, you know, and it gets a little out of control. But there's just something that's less scary to me about, you know, a bunch of pixels chasing me. Then, And that's not a new idea. I'm not the first person to say CG isn't as scary as, you know, somebody practically wearing makeup. But the overuse of CG in this movie is one of the things that I kind of hold against it. I like the idea of what they're doing as far as the zombies being driven by this whole thing uh that they are just these mindless beasts that can run so fast but you're right they're they're running too fast they're making too sharp returns the zombies and this is going to sound really funny the zombies are too supernatural because it just feels like they are being imbued with some sort of otherworldly force other than just being reanimated corpses and i know that that sounds very stupid for me to say no, but I agree that they're not – I don't find World War Z to be a scary movie. It goes into different territories. Like, it tries to be a mystery film, and it becomes this whole idea of Jerry investigating where the zombie outbreak happened, which is kind of more in line with the Max Brooks book, is this whole idea of – we are we are survivors of the war, and we're looking back, and we're seeing how things went down. And that became the basis of the first couple drafts of the screenplay that uh, J. Michael Straczynski wrote, which were, we are in the present at the beginning, and then it is an investigation, and Jerry goes around the world and tries to find out what happened. He digs deep. He gets into the point. It almost becomes a political thriller at points where it's he's getting closer and closer to the truth and just how badly people fucked up when it came to the outbreak happening and we get a little bit of that in the final product but not nearly enough and it also it takes away some of the stakes by having it be an entire well I would say three quarters of it is flashback because we get Jerry going from place to place to place. But then once he interviews people comes the flashbacks and then we get the idea of this is what happened with these zombies. But at the end of the day, we know that Jerry is still alive because he's there doing this. There's no idea that he might die in this because he's our main character and he's the one that's actually doing these interviews and the those early drafts of the screenplay. And it also takes away the immediacy of it and the whole idea of him being right there in the thick of things and being able to survive all of these things, like kind of that Superman, that he can figure it all out and make the right choices and is able to get himself from place to place to place, that he's able to get through the skin section of it. And this Korean section sets up a lot of stuff there's almost too much weight being put onto this one section because this is where we learn about the whole idea of and we got a, a real quick shot of this when they were in the apartment building or about to go into an apartment building that one of the zombies some of the zombies run around this homeless person but it's a real blink and you miss it kind of thing but in here we get this idea of a guy with a bad leg and zombies didn't attack him even though he was right in the middle of things so we get that 
we get David Morse showing up uh, as a CIA operative who is, and I don't know why he's pulling his teeth, because it seems like he would want other people to pull their teeth so that they couldn't bite him, but he is pulling his own teeth, which I guess is just a way to show that he's very devoted to the cause or something. I just feel like the movie is full of moments like that for your sort it just it's confusing. It reminded me a little bit of the story that gets told in Apocalypse Now about the soldiers giving vaccinations to the little Cambodian children. We went into a camp to inoculate some children. We left the camp after we had inoculated the children for polio. And this old man came running after us and he was crying. He couldn't say we went back there, and they had come and hacked off every inoculated arm. There they were in a pile, pile of little arms. And I thought, my God, the genius of that, the genius, the will to do that. Perfect, genuine, complete, crystalline, pure. And then I realized they were stronger than we because they could stand it. These were not monsters. These were men, trained cadres. These men who fought with their hearts, who have families, who have children, who are filled with love. But they had the strength, the strength to do that. And this is David Morse telling this whole story about how North Korea avoided the plague. They took away Zeke's exponential They pulled the teeth of all 23 million in less than 24 hours. Greatest feat of social engineering in history. It's brilliant. No teeth. No bite. No great spread. We don't see North Korea, so we don't see the effects, and it's just all hearsay, and it's like, cool story, bro, but... But also, isn't the whole point that if you're sick, then they don't attack you? So how does pulling your teeth make you sick on the zombie radar? Like, how does that work? That's a good question. There's a lot of that, because we're going to get to... We're we're only going to talk about what level of sick you have to be in order to get off of that zombie radar, because I would think having a metal piece from an airplane stuck through your gut or having your arm lopped off that that might put you off of the radar but for whatever reason that kind of undoes the whole third act of the movie well that's what doesn't make sense is it's like okay so pulling your teeth makes you impervious to the zombies but losing an arm doesn't they just couldn't spread the disease right because they didn't have any teeth so there was no way to for it to spread oh so they they got attacked the zombies but they just didn't spread it right yeah i'm gonna gum you to death but again why is david morse pulling his teeth unless he's afraid he's a carrier which i don't get and then also with like the homeless guy you said that they were avoiding he wasn't sick he was just injured or something like i said it is literal blink and you miss it that's why the movie like didn't I, when i finished watching it i i watched it repeatedly and was like i'm still not figuring out what's going on here Could the zombies view homelessness as a disease? (laughs) 
and they're actually way more progressive than we are. They're like way on top of this homeless thing and they really understand the scope of it. And we're not there yet as a people. Well, would the zombies recognize the opiate epidemic? Maybe they would declare a national emergency. See, we don't ever listen to these zombies. That's the problem. We're too busy killing them and running away from them. They actually have some pretty good ideas about how to fix things in America. The Horde of Undead 2020. It goes back to the original ending for I Am Legend, where it's like, hey, maybe you should just stop and listen to the zombies. He just wanted his girlfriend back. That's all he wanted. It's okay. He just wanted his machete back. We just are in too much of a hurry to kill them. And you're too busy watching Shrek. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> he makes it through Korea, where he loses a bunch of people, and then he goes off to Israel, and this becomes... I mean, it's basically this movie is set piece after set piece after set piece, and this is the big one where he goes to Israel, he meets with this guy, and there's a really interesting thing in the screenplays and in the book, which I don't, I think it's too intelligent for movie audiences of the time because they they explain what a minion is and they go into this whole thing about 10 honest men that Moses is looking for, et cetera, et cetera. No, they just break it down and they, they change it to this whole idea of the 10th man. And they tell the story about how if nine people think that it's one thing, it's the 10th man's responsibility to question that and you know go with the opposite idea so one guy Jurgen Vombron he has helped Israel survive the zombie apocalypse by building these walls and so he is kind of the hero of the day. And it's interesting, they're allowing uh, Palestinians, they're allowing everybody into the country, basically with the idea of the people that get in that are safe and clean, the less people that they'll have to kill on the other side. Okay, that's kind of a cool thing, kind of speaks to, you know, Palestinian-Israeli relationships, all this kind of stuff. And that also eliminates this whole idea of radicalism in the Middle East, which was actually part of the book and part of one of the drafts of the screenplay, where there's this whole idea of, you know, we have been Israel's enemy for all of these years. There's no way we're going to trust them now. So maybe we'll come and attack them from inside. Uh, but that just gets completely dropped, and instead everybody's just super happy, and they're so happy that they start to sing, and then we suddenly introduce the idea that zombies are attracted to sound even more than visual stimuli, which, again, is more part of the screenplays than it is necessarily to admit all of a sudden we're just going to introduce that. This is the part that I think you were alluding to, Patrick, as far as pixels not being as scary as the real deal. Oh, boy. It is really something when they start building their zombie ladder. Yeah, the zombies in this one are very much like ants and the way they crawl over each other. You know, you've seen those pictures of ants creating a ladder so that they can move from one place to another going between branches or something and the zombies in this one are doing almost the exact same thing where they're just crawling on top of each other in order to make it over one of these walls. And this is one of those beats where it's like, who cares what happens to the rest of the country as long as Brad Pitt gets out safely. Yeah. Well, he's a very special man. 
Right. We're constantly told that. <laughs> and his family, we already know, is safe, so there are no stakes there. Right. Yeah. And we really, we get occasional shots of them, or at least of Karen, his wife. And that's about it. I mean, we get a lot of missed phone calls. And of course, the phone will ring at the wrong time and draw attention. Because I guess, again, maybe a little bit of the sound thing. Oh, can we talk about, that's going backwards, I know, but that Korea sequence, I like them on the bikes. I like them trying to silently get to the airplane in the dark. But then the phone goes off, which is just lazy screenwriting. And we have to have James Badgedale doing like the play-by-play over the military radio. Looks like we just woke the dead. Like, yeah, we got it. We understand. This movie doesn't trust its images sometimes. It doesn't trust its audience. It doesn't trust its images. We're really just going to spoon feed you. It's like, you know, it's it's Hollywood finally catching up to the zombie craze and being like, oh, we should do one of these, right? But like, it's like, it's like you're a Kiss fan and then your dad tells you, I got a Kiss album, but it's actually Tony Bennett singing Kiss. <laughs> and you're like, well, now it's not cool. <laughs> like, it's, that's World War Z. It's like, see, we did a zombie movie, everybody. We got Brad Pitt and we spent all the money, but they get a lot of things maybe not so right. Well, what's kind of amazing is that the, the movie spent so much time in production and then it was like, I don't know if they just kept revising the script and they like never went back and like reread it to make sure that it made sense. Because it does, it does, everything feels like these little like set pieces right. and isn't really a kind of cohesion to it. Yeah, that first by J. Michael Straczynski, like I was saying, it's very much we're going to look back and investigate things that way. Then they got to Matthew McCarnahan. And he was doing, he was basically saying, okay, we're not going to do it in the past. We're going to do it in the present. And we're going to show things unfolding the way that they are. But he sticks with it very closely. And even Straczynski's second draft from, I think, mid-2007, he just basically rearranges the, the the same building blocks, the same Legos. It's like they take those Legos from Brooks, they move them into Straczynski's area, and then Carnahan says, no, no, I'm going to do it more from the present. But he keeps some of those Legos, but then he throws out some of those and then brings in some new ones. And it's, I guess, to, to butcher this metaphor some more, it's like he's using two different and so you can really tell where he's welded on his pieces to the other pieces. So it just looks a little bit like a monster. And to your point, Dahlia, it's like they stepped back from that monster and said, yeah, this is kind of ugly. We, we should really restructure this thing. Yeah, just even like one final pass to be like, okay, so let's figure out this thing about the being sick protecting you from zombies, which is sort of like a major plot point. Which isn't even in the Carnahan draft. That doesn't even until Drew Goddard and Damon Lindelof show up and rewrite the third act. Because that stuff of the homeless man being a vid, the stuff of the little boy who's got cancer or the old man in Israel. I think we see two different people that the zombies avoid in Israel. That stuff is all reshoots. And then Segan, this uh, Israeli, this Mossad soldier that uh, helps out Brad Pitt, 
Sagan getting her arm chopped off, and then she says, "Oh, I guess I'm a liability now." And then he gets the you know that kind of like house moment at the end of House where Wilson's talking to him and he understands something all of a sudden and goes, "Oh, okay, this is the whole secret to the movie." That's all completely added on. So once we get onto that plane from Israel going to now we're going to go to Cardiff and visit the World Health Organization, that's the real breaking point. That whole scene with plane becomes completely different where we just introduce this whole new third act. So all of the stuff with hey, it's these people being avoided because they're sick or whatever. Or to your point, Patrick, they are recognizing that there is a crisis in the United States. That that isn't there. That's just all tacked on now. Because originally that plane, the Belarus plane, is going to Russia. And all of the people on the plane are crying and they're sad because they know they're going there to be used as slave labor. Which is... Maybe not the best way. And I have to say, like, some people will be like, oh, the original ending to this was so good. No, it's so different. I can't say that it's so good because it's got Pitt going to Russia. We flash forward a couple months or years. He suddenly has this huge grody beard like he had at the Oscars a few years ago. And he working underground basically taking out all these zombies. He's got this friend now named Simon who's there working with him and Brad Pitt has learned enough Russian to get by and they have these whole this whole way of fighting these zombies and then eventually they find a sewer grate or a manhole and they go up there and they find that they're in Red Square and there's this huge battle going on and they suddenly get gang pressed into fighting all of these zombies. And then all of a sudden, again, Pitt, because he's Brad Pitt, realizes, hey, this is Russia. The zombies are moving slower here than they were anyplace else. It's because of the cold weather. We really need to use Russia Uh, and the weather to beat these guys just like you know russia beat napoleon and hitler before so it's like literally the only thing that remained constant in all these different scripts is that brad pitt saves the day and that there are lots of zombies and expensive set pieces every other plot point changed there's a reason why when they are being, I think it's taken off of the roof in New Jersey, that Matthew Fox is the one of the people. He, he doesn't have a character name in the screenplay, which is weird. He just goes by the name Paratrooper, and I, that's also his name in the, the, the credits of the film. He ends up taking the family off of the boat and takes them to Florida, Camp Comfort in the Everglades, and he basically takes control of the wife and just uses her in the worst way possible. And that's also, like, at one point, Brad Pitt finally gets his cell phone back, because, or his sat phone back, because one of the Russians has taken it, and calls his wife and talks to her for a few minutes, and she's like, don't bother to find me. And then he gets a call back from Matthew Matthew Fox going, hey, dude, we've moved on. You need to move on with your own life. And then Brad Pitt's like, no, no way. I'm coming to find you. And that sets up like a cliffhanger at the end of World War Z when Brad Pitt manages to 
go across the Pacific Ocean and get to Oregon. And then he's like, I'm on my way. We're going to we're going to find her. <laughs> so stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far. I will find you. So, like, that ending of him going to Nova Scotia, that's kind of the same thing, where he's like, our war's just beginning. It's like he's on his way. Yeah, it's an instance where, uh, you know, I'm not in love with um, a lot about this movie, um, but when I read what the original ending was supposed to be, I definitely feel like they made the right choice in reshooting that third act and not having the wife, you know... uh, subjugated to a life of sexual slavery and like but just really bad choices that this movie and i you know they were obviously going for something a lot grittier and darker but the sequence at the end you know it's a big set piece at the end of the movie that ended up being released it's one of the set pieces that i think works better than the other ones so i do think they were onto something trying to course correct and fix this movie i do agree that that they made the right choice with the ending there's also this whole thing, Straczynski version, the daughter, Rebecca, she ends up getting sick because they end up moving towards the north. And um, so again, it's like, oh yeah, the zombies move slower here. Or the zombies are less plentiful. They end up being north and they end up, uh, Rachel ends up getting pretty sick and they're afraid they, that she might die, so they end up resorting to cannibalism of dead bodies. And then Rachel sees what they were cooking, sees a hand in a pot, and she flips the fuck out and becomes what they call a quizzling. And that is a person who thinks that they're a zombie, even though they're alive. And so there's this whole subplot of them and like what motivates Jerry in the Straczynski version to look into the zombie plague is you know, his daughter's basically uh, mentally ill now and she's fine some days and then other days she attacks people like she's a zombie. And then in the Carnahan version, it's kind of the same thing, except without her being sick. She just um, she just ends up thinking that she's a zombie, and then carrying the hat on her that says "alive." Uh, in the other version, it's a sign around her neck that says "not dead." And then the people on the ship are just like, "Hey, we can't have these quizlings around here. Get the fuck the ship." And that's how they end up being shipped off. And then Terry. Even though we never see him die, he's a, he's dead at one point. It's just like, okay, don't know how that happened. So again, don't go saying that, hey, this Carnahan version, that's really what we should have seen. Oh my gosh. It is pretty messed up. But yeah, that, that ending, <laughs> so Brad Pitt, is, yeah, he manages to be one of two people that survived this horrific plane crash. <laughs> Where he throws a grenade and essentially crop dusts zombies across the countryside, right? Like he's just like Johnny Appleseed, but with zombies because he's just sprinkling them as the plane flies over. The idea being what? They're going to land unless they their heads splatter. Uh, they're just going to get up and attack more people. There's a lot of don't think about that in the last part of this movie. But yeah, like so he gets impaled on this piece of metal. Sagan's got her hand chopped off. 
but for whatever reason, the zombies might still go after them. So I don't get it. I don't get the level of sick you have to be or injured or whatever in order to avoid the zombies attacking you. No, that whole plot point doesn't make any sense. Like, that's why I'm like, did anybody reread the script to, like, make sure that it was, like, consistent with that radical development? It just seems very convenient and kind of slapped on. The best part of this ending for me is that you get to have Peter Capaldi and Ruth Dega as actors in the hair. That's about it. I mean, it's tense, and it kind of worked that way. You know, I'm not going to shit all over this new ending. There are the logic flaws for me. But it does kind of work in the whole idea of him sneaking into this area and getting you know all of these different diseases and then shooting himself with one and then that becomes the uh, camouflage. But it, yes and no. It's like all right. You know, somebody once described this. Uh, I can't remember where I read it, but it was like they took an art house movie and they disguised it a multi-million dollar Hollywood film. Like they, they snuck it in the end because this last part just tonally doesn't feel like anything else in the rest of the movie. Well, because it finally feels a little bit more intimate and so much of the movie is overblown and big. And that's, you know, part of its appeal, I guess, is that they made a zombie movie on this scale and the ending is more in line with what I think we typically see with zombie movies, which is a smaller cast, a single location. And so it feels a little bit more like the zombie movies with which maybe I'm already familiar and maybe that's why I'm responding to it a little bit more. But I agree, it's it's kind of a hard turn from the rest of the movie. Yeah, we don't get that. Uh, I'm not sure who does the music in this, but it feels like Hans Zimmer, especially like later Hans Zimmer, where you get that kind of thing. I think it's Marco Mami doing his best. I know the band mused some of the music too, which is kind of cool. That is kind of cool. I did not know that. Yeah. yeah there's a weird uh, beat for product placement near the end of this film when Brad Pitt stops what he's doing just to have uh, an ice cold Pepsi. <laughs> Yeah, I saw somebody on YouTube had taken that moment where he cracks open that Pepsi and it has that long, satisfying drink, and then all of a sudden it cuts to Michael Jackson's Pepsi commercial. (laughs) It's like, oh, wow. Yeah, because that's really in your face. Contractor, no. I will not bow to any sponsor. Again, it's this kind of abrupt thing where it's like, okay, now we get news footage. I don't know why news stations are suddenly back on the air, but we get news footage of, okay, now we've got kind of a cure, but it's not a cure. It's just like, and I would like to see what that world looks like where you get this vaccine and you are quote unquote invisible to the zombies. So you're just walking around your neighborhood and the zombies, like, can you bump into them or will they attack if you bump into them? Can they, I guess they can't smell you or see you just, yeah, it, it, it raises a lot of questions. And then we get this whole montage of, Hey, we're rebuilding and we're taking out all these zombies. And it just almost feels like, um, almost like an army commercial towards the end of this movie. Well, and the whole thing about them 
theoretically smelling you and smelling the disease on you and therefore, you know, knowing to just move past you kind of butts up uncomfortably against the whole thing that it's sound. So if you're walking down the street singing to yourself, yeah, they can't smell you because you're sick, but they can still hear you. So which is it? How do they find us? Or are they just not interested? They're like, oh, this guy, I would attack him, but he's a little ill. He was running a fever yesterday. I'm going to give him a break. And they just constantly are saying that. I guess so. They're just taking a pass. It's kind of cool. For a long time, I remember Fincher being attached to it, and I just didn't believe they were ever going to do it. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't invest in that movie, because... Uh, do you know how far along they got with the potential sequel? I think Carnahan had written a sequel to it, but that's it. Uh, I, I don't know how far along Fincher got with the production. You know, it was kind of a, a, a match made in heaven as far as Fincher and Pitt working again together. But yeah, I don't. I think it was one of those projects that didn't go that far. <laughs> and that always seemed very surprising to me that Fincher would be doing a sequel to this movie because, again, I don't think super highly of the original. So it seems odd to me that he would be interested in, you know, a sequel already sounds like a bad idea. And for a director of his caliber to be wanting to sign on, there must have been something about it, you know, even if it was just the opportunity to work with Brad Pitt again that was drawing him to the project. But I can't imagine what it would be. I mean, that's almost as bad as the idea of doing a uh, American remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But look how well that worked out. <laughs> I, that Did might it? be my least favorite Fincher movie. Mine too. I think it's kind of unwatchable. It is. Yeah, I, I'd I rather actually, watch the original. I actually tried to rewatch it a couple months ago and couldn't do it. So your theory uh, <laughs> is correct. It is unwatchable. <laughs> To your point, Patrick, it's an interesting blip on the radar. Like, look at what Hollywood is doing and spending all this money. And it just, it didn't do it, man. It just, it, it tripped there and it just couldn't figure it out. But it still made a lot of money in the box office, right? I believe so, yeah. Especially uh, worldwide, I believe it did very well. Which makes sense. Got our money. I see it opening weekend as well. Yeah. So it's like, you know, in, in whose eyes is it a failure? Um, it appears to have made about $540 million globally. One thing that they really cut out of this movie was the idea of uh, Jerry going to China. China is a big part of the Straczynski screenplay. And they were like, nope, nope, we cannot disparage China whatsoever. <laughs> because the we need to make money. So they're like, let's set this up so that China's the hero. And that's, I think, where South Korea comes into it. But yeah, I was laughing at the screenplay because uh, they referenced to Jiangxi, which we talked about in the Mr. Vampire episode. The other thing that I found interesting was that uh, Carnahan often refers to the zombies. I called them ants, and he refers to them as birds in that they flock like birds which is totally what uh, Stephen King was playing with, with uh, what was that movie uh, or the book Cell, I think it might have been, or The Cell. The yeah. Cell. And that was 100% these zombies are like birds. Did you know they made a movie out of that? I oh. did. I saw it. 
Yeah, me too. I was very surprised that it was made and came out. It is not good, no. <laughs> no, it is very not good. I can't say the book's good and the movie is a lot less good. Yeah, that sounds about right. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Dr. Sarah Juliet Laro, the author of The Transatlantic Zombie, Slavery, Rebellion, and the Living Dead. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hi, I'm William Campbell, the presenter of Challenging Opinions. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic. What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Every week, I talk to someone new and put their position to the test. Search Challenging Opinions wherever you find podcasts or go to challengingopinions.com. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art Indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.tv, the new streaming service for art house films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to ovid.tv, that's ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code podcast, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. Wow. 
how did you decide to start writing about zombies? I had a strange upbringing because um, my dad was a professor at Columbia University in New York when I was really little. And so uh, we were living in New York and then he took a job to go work on the AIDS crisis in Africa, basically, and issues pertaining to public health. So when I was seven, I moved to Africa and I basically spent my whole childhood. By the time I went to college, I had spent half of my life in different countries in Africa. And then I went straight from there to college at Berkeley. And so I felt very odd. I was like American, but I didn't know slang. I had gone to American schools, but our pop culture references were all sort of like, you know, six months to a year behind what was actually cool. I just sort of felt like a fish out of water. When I was in graduate school and I, I hadn't ever been interested in zombies at all. I've never liked horror. I've, I'm kind of a big chicken when it comes to movies, and I actually much prefer to watch a comedy um, if it's just to, to relax or be entertained. But once I sort of started putting together the pieces that this movie monster had something to do with Africa, I felt a kinship with it, I think, because to look at me, I'm a short white girl. No one would know that Africa had been formative to who I was. So I think it was that moment when I felt like, oh, wait, people really need to know the whole story of this. They need to know that there actually is a connection um, to Africa and that this zombie is proof of the way that Africa is, is vibrant and alive in our culture. And that specifically comes through the transatlantic slave trade. Now, I know a little bit about the slave trade. I remember things from high school, the whole thing of rum for slaves for the big triangle. When I think about zombies, though, I don't usually go back all the way to Africa. I usually just kind of stop in, in Haiti. So how do you go from, from Haiti back to Africa? Yeah, so that exactly is the part of the story that I wanted to tell. Because anyone who's done a little bit of their homework knows that the zombie comes into American culture around the 1930s, a little bit earlier than the, 19, than the start of the 1930s, when um, we're occupying Haiti and people start bringing back these stories of dead men working in the cane fields. But what I uncovered in my research was that there's a, an ancestor relative um, from the, I would, my thesis, because obviously this is all based on oral history and oral accounts, is that this comes from a kind of soul capture mythology from the Congo and Angola regions of Africa, and that that's really where it started, and um, that that it migrated along with the enslaved people as they made that journey, and it sort of continued to evolve to take on different significances. One of the things I always find so fascinating about zombies, you're talking about how it starts as one thing and changes to another. And just in pop culture, zombies have morphed so many times just throughout the years, just from we're not even a hundred years away from white zombie. And I walked with a zombie and here we have so many different variations, like within a week of DVD or Blu-ray or streaming releases, you can have so many different types of zombies. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, because it's a it's a really convenient signifier. It's sort of this empty vessel. A lot of people like to say that can be filled with whatever is plaguing no no pun intended, but whatever is plaguing our culture at at any given moment. So if we're uh, you know if we're really afraid of biohazards and the toxic chemicals that we're leaching into the environment, then those are going to show up in a film. If we're really unsettled even with one 
aspect of zombie culture that I was fascinated with for a while were food zombies and all of the different narratives, not as much in cinema, um, though there are a couple of, of examples of food contamination causing zombies. So whether it's viral, whether it's environmental, whether it's um, space radiation, obviously some of the big ones from the Cold War era, whatever it we're most worried about can find a home in the zombie narrative. So on this episode, we're talking about World War Z, and I find it to be very interesting in especially one major way, which is that when I think of zombie films, I usually tend to think of them being in a very isolated location or one location, I should say. So things like the farmhouse, the Night of the Living Dead, the mall in Day of the Dead, even when it comes to Shaun of the Dead, it's all located just in London, but this one spans the globe. I personally didn't connect with that film as much because I was, so the book is even better on that account, right? Because the book has no single narrator. It's all roving vignettes, kind of like a big picture of what the world is, what all of these different people in different places around the world are experiencing and how they're experiencing this crisis. Um, and so from the first moment that I heard that Brad Pitt was going to star in it, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> this is not going to be the same because it's going to obviously follow one character. And, you know, that 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 is exactly what it does. But I felt like the beauty of showing how different people react to the crisis was something that wasn't necessarily lost. I think it's still it's still there um, in the film, but it's not. I have to say it's absolutely not up there with my favorite films, though I think that you're right. You're pointing to a really a good reason that that film sort of stands out from the others. Well, and kind of going back to what you were talking about with Africa, Africa might be in the book, but it's definitely nowhere in the movie. He seems to go to, what, three major hotspots, maybe four if you count the U.S., and that's it. And it seems to be very tied into, at least in 2013, global politics of the time, where you've got South Korea, Israel, and England, and then the United States. And it just kind of makes this global trek, but to very, very, very specific places. Well, I could see maybe why they chose to leave Africa out. I mean, if you think about I, now, the number is going to escape me, but I think it might be Resident Evil Five, Seven. There was a video game that they that was set in Africa, um, a part of the Resident Evil series, and it was very maligned uh, because there was this kind of collapsing of uh, black bodies that could be shot and the undead. So that just came off as super racist. And I think maybe a choice to not set part of uh, a zombie apocalypse story in Africa, despite the fact that it would maybe pay homage to uh, the roots, the deep, deep roots of the mythology, which most people still don't know about, is that it's just, it's kind of, it's not a good look to show, especially white heroic characters mowing down black Africans. It calls to mind maybe, yeah, too much about the history of colonialism and empire. So I think that they tried to do that work, but said it in Israel instead. I mean, Israel can be looked at so many different ways, and it just, it's like, okay, well, how are we handling it in this? Because I know it definitely changed a lot from the book to the movie, just even with the idea of like how the Palestinians were treated being welcomed into um, Jerusalem at this point. Yeah, and I'm not going to say anything on record about Israel or Palestine. It's just too. It's, it's a hot too potato, man. A topic. Yeah. It's a total hot potato. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, and you don't know me. I could be some sort of nut. <laughs> you, I, yeah, you could be a right-wing person looking to get me fired, which would be super easy to do. Did you see a change in the zombie narrative post 9-11? So there are many zombie scholars, and that's just what we call ourselves, people who sort of specialize in looking at the, at the zombie, and I can give you names of them. There are many people who really did feel that there was a radical change in the zombie narrative around 9-11. And I push back against that. Um, and part of the reason that I push back against that narrative is because I sort of have taken on the mantle of being the one to always remind everyone that this myth is not American in origin, um, that, not, that, it, that, it, that it comes from Haiti, that it's deeply Haitian, that it's deeply about our occupation and our sort of cultural mining um, and appropriation of other cultures. In part, that's, you know, like a gross bastardization, but that's, um, that's sort of my job. So I think that the best zombie films of what we call the new millennium are actually not American. So 28 days later, I think definitely was the best one. People, when, you know, people were coming out and noting that there was some sort of parallels with the message board. There's a scene in that film where people are posting signs about lost loved ones. And, you know, that really resounded with some American viewers with all of the, the signs that went up in Ground Zero uh, when people were still unaccounted for. But, you know, in point of fact, as other scholars have pointed out, that was shot um, before 9-11 happened, or at least it was storyboarded before 9-11 had even occurred. So I don't think there was any intentional uh, reference, but that's beside the point. I think that there's been a cache of fascinating Canadian zombie films. You mentioned Shaun of the Dead, which is absolutely one of my personal favorites. I think that um, many of the best zombie movies of the new era are, are not actually American. So even though 9-11 obviously touched the entire globe, it's still a national, a national crisis. And I'm always cautioning people to sort of get away from that because I think that the whole history of the zombie reminds us of how deeply connected we are, that this this uh, movie monster is haunted by the ghosts of enslavement and the capture of Africans and reminds us of how, how connected we all are on the planet through through ill um, and, you know, maybe sometimes good, but obviously it's a, it, a zombie apocalypse tend to be nightmare scenarios. So that's sort of why I emphasize other aspects of the mythology rather than 9-11. Do you still see a lot of the colonialism when it comes to zombie narratives? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would say, so a lot of times when people say the zombie is such a convenient boogeyman because it can take on all of these different um, fears, which I, I just said to you a moment ago, certainly I do believe that. But I think that it is important always to remind ourselves of the origin. And I think that at bottom, it, it's something that can't be just bleached out of the zombie. And the reason is that if you look at, at a zombie, whether it's a feral, swift cannibal, or whether it is sort of the Romero-esque, bumbling, um, really rather feeble creature, at some point there's a, there is a loss of humanity. There's a lack of control over one's own gestures. I mean, even the, the zombie that's trying to eat your brains, you have a sense that it doesn't want to be doing that, that it is being powered by some other force. And so I think slavery is just inherent to the zombie. I think that no matter whether it's a viral mythology or a radiation mythology or uh, Russian spies are controlling the dead through robotics somehow, 
narrative. I think that there's always this uh, whiff of slavery and that that takes us back to our history. So what was your final inspiration to say, I'm going to write all this and I'm going to be the zombie scholar and write the transatlantic zombie? I don't know because I came into graduate school with a very different project that I wanted to do. I had the right idea at the right time. And um, I wrote along with a colleague of mine in graduate school named Karen Embry. We wrote this little piece called A Zombie Manifesto. We sent it out to a very, very high profile journal out of Duke University, which is all down to and they accepted it. And I mean, nobody believed that they were going to publish this thing these two grad students had written. I remember my advisor being like, no, this can't be right. I think that we just caught hold of the zeitgeist. And as a result of that, I was kind of catapulted to the forefront as other scholars were, were catching on saying, wow, there's really something to this. Why are zombies ubiquitous all of a sudden? And so for me, more than 9-11, and I say this with a, a little bit of uh hesitancy because I actually received hate mail once for, for, for saying this. To me, the Iraq war is much more present in the people's obsession with zombies at the turn of the new millennium rather than 9-11. I will tie that specifically to the zombie walk phenomenon. The zombie walk phenomenon also began in Canada. So it's not just something that is American and it also was a global phenomenon. So, you know, Australia, Brazil, just everywhere people sort of got zombie fever. So it wasn't just that it signified for Americans a lack of control, but in those events that were occurring, it started around 2003 and really built and built and built until, I want to say, like 2010. I think there was just this really too tidy of a parallel to the fact that, you know, when the Bush administration had announced that we were invading Iraq, Everybody marched against it. There were huge protests, and yet we went to war anyway. And so I think that the zombie was a convenient signifier at that time for a kind of political disempowerment. That's interesting. You say it became one of my favorite zombie films directly deals with Iraq, which is The Revenant, not the one with Leo DiCaprio. Heroes fall, and sometimes they rise again. Me. You're supposed to be dead. So again. Dude, that's, that's my rug. You're a revenant. A revenant? He will need to drink human blood. If he doesn't, his soul will be in eternal agony. I just want some blood. Okay. What type? Well, and you've written more than just the transatlantic zombie. You've written quite a few zombie books. Yeah, well, I've edited. So one thing that I, I really like to do, and actually this relates to World War Z, but what I thought was so beautiful about World War Z was that it had all these different people's perspectives. Because I do think there's a thing, and there's this flicker of promise in the zombie, and that's uh, the zombie swarm. So that was the argument that sort of catapulted me and Karen Embry into sort of the zombie limelight, if you will, with um, the zombie manifesto, it was sort of arguing that if there's an upside to, zo- to the zombie apocalypse, it's this, uh, it's the end of the individual and the, and the real burgeoning of a kind of collective in the zombie swarm. That was like, you know, a sort of our takeaway. So anytime that the zombie takes a step back from that little farmhouse, like you were saying, and, and, takes a glance around at the way other people 
are um, coping with the crisis. I think it's kind of closer to the zombie collectivity that most interests me. And the reason I'm so interested in that is that I, my line is that the zombie is not just always coded with the history of the, tra- the transatlantic slave trade and the history of enslavement, but specifically because of its birth, real true birth in Haiti, it is related always to rebellion. And so I think there's this really powerful streak of resistance in zombie narratives and collectivity and understanding that the world is bigger than just yourself and what you're suffering from. So I like to point that out wherever I find that. It always seems to be the thing where we have to imagine what the zombie apocalypse is going to be like in other places because they do focus on that smaller place so often. Obviously, there's the roving bands of survivors and like something like The Walking Dead. And recently, I saw a Canadian movie. I'm not going to be able to come up with the name of it now, but it's on Netflix. And it it sort of does a similar thing, but just across like one Canadian town. But you get to meet all these different people and, and, and their sort of strategies rather than just single groups of protagonists. I mean, yeah, I think that that's one of the things about the zombie protests that were occurring is that there was this um, reminder of the power of the people, kind of, even though they were these silly events where everyone was dressed up as zombies and sort of staggering around in fake blood and makeup. um, There was this idea that the people could exercise their power. And then during the Obama years, I would say that that piece of it really kind of fell off. I I mean, actually, you can watch the decline of statistics for zombie events. And now I have no idea where we are, because I think it's we're, it's sort of too early to tell in the Trump era exactly what our zombies are doing. I think that <laughs> I think that people are, um, you know, are still working on screenplays and pitching different ideas to producers or things are being made. But that's why I was really excited to see um, Jim Jarmusch's movie, which I saw from Twitter, it looked like you didn't really like. So I would love if I could just turn the tables on you to hear a little bit about what you didn't like, liked or didn't like about that movie. It was pretty slow paced, but at least stuff was happening. I guess I didn't like the self reflexivity of it. Like as soon as Adam Driver's like, "Oh, that's the theme for the movie," I was like, "Okay, that's a funny line." And then as he starts to reveal like why he knows things, I was like, "Okay." how are we playing this? Are we playing it that these are actors or are we playing it that only Adam driver's an actor? It just felt a little muddled. I know it was really super weird, but that's actually, so I have a reason why I actually really love that. Um, But it's, it's complicated. I'm going to have to write a whole other article on what I think, what I think was important about that moment, because I obviously it seemed like a really bad joke. I mean, that's that metafiction is something that we associated with, text and movies in like the eighties and nineties. And it's something that's so dead now and so over in literature and film. So I thought, okay, is this just cute? Cause they're, he's resurrecting this like metafiction or is it deeper than that? Because he's kind of pointing out that the whole time we were wringing our hands in the eighties and complaining about the fact that there was nothing new to say, we should have been working on the ecological crisis. So Maybe that's giving Jarmusch too much credit, but that's sort of like the reading that I advance of the film. To go back to the different articles and and books that I've I've written about zombies, I wrote that piece with Karen Embry about zombie collectivity called The Zombie Manifesto. And then I edited a collection 
um, called Better Off Dead, um, The Evolution of the Zombie as Post-Human. Then I published my own book, The Transatlantic Zombie, Slavery, Rebellion, and Living Death. And just recently, I edited a collection called Zombie Theory, which is sort of a, a best of. It's like a greatest hits of zombie scholarship. So I put in there essays from all different disciplines. There's some from anthropology, history. There's not there's not the epidemiology and math ones that exist out there, but I definitely reference those in sort of the little introductions that begin each chapter. So I really like working with a group and asking people, I, I really like putting together those books where it's not all me, putting together a bunch of people to think about zombies. In fact, one thing I really wanted I really wanted to challenge writers to do is to like write a book collection of zombie stories together where they're all imagining the zombie apocalypse and in, in happening in different places, but have sort of like world war Z, but have it written by 20 different authors contributing a short essay or a short um, story. So what are you working on these days? Oh, wow. Well, it's serious. It's shifting gears a lot, but I think it's just as timely and I'm, think that just the way that I got lucky with the zombie and sort of, you know, hit the ground with that, I'm hitting the ground with something else. And that is, I've been researching for a long time, the fact that in the United States, we don't commemorate our heroes of slave rebellions the way other countries do. So I just got back actually from a Fulbright scholarship in Brazil. And while like everywhere you go in Brazil, you're going to see statues to enslaved persons who had fought against the Portuguese. There's a plaza that has um, busts to four different people who led a revolt and they were drawn and quartered as a result. But these people are celebrated as heroes the way that we celebrate, you know, Martin Luther King. Now, in our country, you could never have a statue to Nat Turner. Maybe I'm wrong. We can we have some statues to Harriet Tubman. But she's, you know, associated mostly with nonviolent means. So I'm looking at the ways that we use other art forms like film, like video games, like literature um, and other kinds of performances to commemorate slave resistance. So, for example, the fact that Harriet Tubman was supposed to be on the $20 bill and now the Treasury has officially said that that's not going to happen anymore you may notice there's this movement where people are making stamps um, of Harriet Tubman's face and they're stamping it <laughs> over the center of the 20. And um, I think that that's a beautiful kind of guerrilla art making um, that's happening to say, no, we're not going to let this be erased. We are going to celebrate our freedom fighters. I'm looking at my stamp right now as you're saying that. Oh, really? You've got one too? Yeah, I have one too. They're awesome. So I know the movie Harriet is coming out, and I'm excited for that. Um, I thought that, thing, I, you know, when the Nat Turner movie came out a couple of years ago, I thought, okay, here we go. It's really happening now. Um, and there was also a series on television called Underground, but that all just kind of fizzled out um, when Trump was elected. So, um, so we'll see what happens. And there was also that weird backlash that was going on when that Nat Turner movie came out, where it almost felt like a... I don't again. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it almost felt like a an organized attack. Oh man! I mean, all I'll say is that I have tried to launch that argument, and I've had my wrist slapped. 
I hear you on that. It was, it was, it was an, it was unfortunate that the first movie, mainstream movie, to be made about Nat Turner. That that's ultimately where it ended up. But um, yeah, I, you know, it was part of the. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to comment anything on the whether or not it was deserved, but it was just unfortunate. Professor Lara, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, I mean, there's several books on Amazon that you can buy. I think that I'm not the only zombie scholar, though. And so I would love to give a shout out um, to a woman named Chera Key, and that's spelled C-H-E-R-A. And then the last name is Key, K-E-E, who just who has a book called Extraordinary Zombies. It gives the history of the zombie that I, I give in my book in a in a shorter version. And then it talks about um, the evolution in zombie cinema and specifically focuses on those few characters that we do get to know who do have names. Characters like Bub from Day of the Dead or um, Big Daddy from Land of the Dead. And obviously those are just two Romero films, but sort of the extraordinary zombie. Most studies of the zombie are going to start out with a history of um, how this got into our culture and what are its significances before they start talking about the way that it was forever changed by George Romero. If you have listeners who are really, really itching to know the whole history, my book, The Transatlantic Zombie, takes it all the way back to 17th century Africa and to accounts of sorcerers who were supposedly stealing people's souls and making them labor in far off lands. And if you know anything about the Haitian zombie, you'll see that those things are very parallel. In the Haitian mythology, zombies weren't terrifying. They weren't cannibals. They weren't um, threatening in any way. They were just these feeble creatures who basically were enslaved after death and made to labor for someone else's profit. There's sort of a zombie book for anyone's interest. There's actually a great collection called Zombies and Sexuality. It was a little much for me. It was a little, I mean, some of the stuff is pretty, <laughs> pretty gross. Um, but, you know, there is scholarship out there to, ch- to ch- um, challenge all of our assumptions. Like we usually think that vampires are sexy, but that zombies are not. Um, so there's a whole book just for that. So I am by no means um, the only person working on this, but I would say that my contribution is really reminding people of the zombies origins and the fact that it's always not just about slavery, but also always about resistance to slavery and that it is a figure of empowerment as much as it's a figure of disempowerment and that there's this really charged tension between those two things. Well, you may not be the only zombie scholar, but you're definitely the only zombie scholar on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Well, I am. I, I was lucky enough to lock down that handle <laughs> first. So, yeah. It's a great handle, and I knew I had the right person when I put together this episode. Yeah, well, thanks Thanks very much. I'm glad that you found me. Oh, 
Pizza? And we're talking about World War Z. I wanted to talk a little bit about the film Train to Busan because when I caught that on Netflix a few months ago, it just kept reminding me of World War Z. I don't know if it was past zombies or what, what it was, but I kept saying to myself, this is the movie that I wish World War Z would have been. And I get to your point from earlier, Dahlia. It's a smaller film. It takes in just a couple locations, and then it manages way to turn up the heat and make me actually care about these characters. And it doesn't give me a super like a Brad Pitt to have as my main character. It gives me basically like a well, he's a handsome man, but he's kind of a schlub as far as like he's a a, a cog in a corporate wheel. And he wants to do well with his daughter and actually his daughter. And I care about this guy by the end of the film, which is a lot more than I can say about Brad Pitt and his family. There are actual stakes in this movie. Yeah, You end up caring about even the supporting characters, you know, think about who the supporting characters are in World War Z. You can maybe identify them by their job or maybe by their name. But again, you don't know anything about any of those people. Uh, one of them rhymes with Jerry, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, even the supporting characters in Train to Busan are people that you care about and people that you want to see survive what's happening. And Mike, I had the exact same thought. I re- I'd, I'd seen it when it came out on VOD, but I rewatched it uh, yesterday and just sat there the whole movie thinking, oh, this is the movie that World War Z is trying to be. Like, this movie succeeds in pretty much every way that I think World War Z comes up short. Well, I feel like you're more like at least for me, I was more invested in those the two older sisters on the train than probably ninety nine percent of the cast of World War Z. Absolutely. And I don't even remember their names, but I was <laughs> emotionally invested in them and their reunion and all that stuff. They were great. The kind of heavy guy with his pregnant wife, the He's baseball best. player and his cheerleader. There's so many good characters. And then using a COO as our bad guy, that guy's just the most despicable person I've ever seen in a movie. And he's fantastic. He was a, he's a great, great villain. Mm-hmm. He's there to fuck anybody over for a buck or basically he's just so selfish. He will screw over everybody else on that train. No, they're good people and they don't feel like uh, caricatures, like two-dimensional caricatures. It's interesting that it was three years after, Train to Busan was three years after World War Z, and it's also three years after Snowpiercer, because I kept thinking of Snowpiercer, especially when it comes to, there's a moment in the movie, because the movie 
doesn't start on a train. It takes a little while to get to me. And I think that's basically like our, our first act is over. Second act begins went on to the train. And then the, like midway through that, get off the train for a little bit. And that becomes one of the most horrific scenes. And again, I guess it's because the zombies, the way that they're from themselves, like through a window and that the, just the way that they're not as ant-like, insect-like as the ones in World War Z, but they've got that same fast running. They kind of are other than individual units like I've seen with most zombies. So it's, it's, the the way that they overwhelm the train, the way that they come through that window is, again, what reminds me. But when they reset onto the train, we've got this whole thing of, you know, people in car 9, people in car 13, people in car 15, I think it is. And then the whole struggle to get from 9 all the way to 15, that a lot of Snowpiercer and the way that they had figure out the ways to get through those different cars and that their tactics keep having to change like they can use one thing time again these zombies are very attracted to sound so they go out and they're kind of blind when they go through tunnels so they're figuring out when the next tunnel's going just all of these tactics that they use to through the train oh it was just fantastic it just really kept me invested and again i felt more tense watching this movie that did any time watching world war z well because world war z just feels fake it feels like spectacle Whereas, first of all, I think that just the, the, the concept of having the movie set on a train, um, you know, it takes me back to like Agatha Christie and the Orient Express and just that idea of you're trapped in this small space. And so immediately the stakes are higher because you can't outrun the zombies. I mean, you're, you're very constricted in terms of where you can go and how you can get away. And so that alone, I think, makes it sort of more emotionally compelling. I also like that we don't know that the world is a better place outside. Like hearing like, oh, once we get to Busan, things are going to be better. But I don't believe it. You know, I just don't believe that once that train arrives wherever, that things are going to be better. And the, the train doesn't necessarily, I mean, we get the whole idea of the, the, the pregnant woman and the daughter at the end, where they're almost fucking killed uh <laughs> thank god that she's singing that uh, hawaiian song <laughs> at the end but it's not a good world that they're entering once they get there you know it, and it's kind of that we know that the world's still shit there's a similar concept i don't know if you've seen the tv show the last ship that was on tnt uh but instead of basically instead of a train they're on like a, on a on a ship and then they hear that there's a viral outbreak and they have no idea how bad the world is going to be. And then they eventually make it to Baltimore and et cetera. But it's that same kind of idea where it's like, yeah, you know, I think, you know, that like that idea in horror where the, the monster you don't see is scarier than the monster that you do. So I like that they're not explicit about the state of the world so that you can kind of imagine how bad it is rather than seeing the cliched shots of like, piles of body bags or empty streets or whatever i like that the idea cuts out at one point like we are getting the stories like kind of like how we began world war z with the montage of the world we don't necessarily get that here and get just like some web stories like on 
uh, Kim Browser, there's a story about mysterious fish deaths. So we just get that, and then we start to understand that things are happening. What's really chilling to me is when he's on his way to the train station and almost uh, run off the road by those uh, ambulances and the um, fire trucks and all that, and then when they've got the window open and the the ash lands on his daughter's hand. It's just, mm-hmm. oh, wow. You know, just those little moments. It's like, okay, the world is starting to go to hell here. And then we, yeah, we'll get the news reports and things, but at a certain, just don't get those anymore. And that is, to your point, Dali, just makes it even worse because we what the world's going to be. And then occasionally we'll get like those phone calls or, you know, like him talking to his mother and the way that, this knows you can tell that she is basically at the moment and that you know things are, are, are happening on her end and then the phone call drops it yeah it's much more chilling than the sort of paint by numbers here is what the world looks like as it collapses which you've seen in so many movies and I guess that reminds me of Snowpiercer too, as far as what the world is like off of that train. Like you get the one moment I think in Snowpiercer where you get off of the train but I think they just send some boom with that, and the rest of it is just kept in that one location. It's it's a clever thing. It's like the haunted house kind of thing, but instead it's just one location being a moving location instead of a stationary location. And because it's moving, you can't get off of it. Yeah, and there's the danger in that. You fall off and kill yourself. That moment of the train engine that's on fire coming to I don't know why, but that's one of the chilling images in this movie for me. Just it's because you don't know what the hell happened to that engine to fire like that. And that it just becomes like, oh, by the way, here's this huge thing that's coming right at you, barreling towards you, going to kill all. And there's no reason for it. It's just basically like, here's the hand of God. Again, it's the difference between a movie that trusts its visuals and a movie that needs to spell everything out for you which is kind of World War Z. And this movie will give you things like the train on fire or the little bit of ash landing on her hand, or even just that quick glimpse you see before the train first takes off. You see somebody go down right outside the window. And some of that early stuff reminds me a little bit of like Shaun of the Dead, where things are happening in the background and we're just watching our main character. But in the background, we see things going to hell. It trusts it's visuals, whereas I don't think World War Z does. World War Z is very afraid that you're going to miss something or not get it, and this movie is not. Right. Like, even with when the mother turns, it's like, the, remember the first time I watched that, I was like, it took me a second to realize what they were communicating. You know, they're not like, oh my god, I can't believe what happened to my mother. <laughs> Yeah, and he needs to play it cool because he's got his daughter there, and the way that he has to put on airs sometimes, it's just like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's just such a nicely crafted film, and watching it a second time, I was like, okay, yeah, this holds up as well as it did the first time, if not better, because I'm catching more things. Like, to your point, Patrick, like, the people who are fighting in the thing, it's just a fight, but instead it's probably a zombie attack. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Twinkle, twinkle, movie star. Eric knows just where you are. Try to run, try to hide. You won't get out of this alive. Dennis Christopher in Fade to Black. 
rated R. Fade to Black now playing at a theater near you. That's right. We'll be back next with a look at Fade to Black. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Patrick and Dust. So, Patrick, how is the world of F the movie these days? Uh, the world is good. We just recently recorded our 500th episode, and uh, we're putting out new shows every week at fthismovie.com. And Dahlia, I hear you've got some big stuff coming up in your world. Yeah, I, uh, I moved to New York City, where I'm now teaching film and media classes at the Fashion Institute of Technology and planning all kinds of different events, if any of your listeners are in the New York area. And I'm frantically trying to finish the Haunted House book so that you and I can talk about it. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also you'll find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Oh, the dead don't die. Any more than you or I They're just ghosts inside the dream Of a life that we don't know They walk around us all the time Never paying any mind To the silly lives we lead Or the reaping we've all sown there's a cup of coffee waiting on every corner Someday we're gonna wake up And find the corners gone But the dead will still be walking around This whole world alone Cause after life is over the afterlife goes on There'll be old friends walking around In a somewhat familiar town That you saw once When you looked up from the phone Nobody bothers saying hi And you can save all your goodbyes Stop trying to pretend That we're all not at home And the streets look so empty in the morning There'll be no Shining down on But the dead will still be walking around And this world alone Our afterlife is over The afterlife goes on Hearts break when loved ones journey on At the thought they're now forever gone They're all still around us all the time Oh, we're not forgotten Just memories left behind
the dead will still be walking around in this world alone. I'm laughing life is over. The afterlife goes on. I'm If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.